Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, as we open your word again today, we are thankful that we have the promise that your word never returns empty, that it always accomplishes what you have for it, and that your spirit continues to move and to work even in times when we aren't together physically and when it's harder to see how you're working, we can trust that you are working and moving. And we know that because you continue to move in our hearts and in the hearts of people we love. And so we pray that you would lift our hearts today, that you would encourage us by your word, that as we sing, as we hear scripture read, as we pray together, as we now dig into and study a passage together, that all of this, we pray, would lift our hearts, refix our eyes, refresh our understanding of who you are and what you've done, so that we can be reminded and, and turn and trust that there's something bigger than ourselves and our circumstances. So would you help us today, we pray, in the name of Christ, our Savior, and our hope. Amen. Amen. Um, as a kid, especially like getting into middle school age, I feel like that's like kind of the perfect time for this, uh, middle school into high school. I can remember discovering Monty Python. Now, I know some of you who are from an older generation, you didn't discover Monty Python like I did. You just, that was part of growing up, but that was far before my time. And so, but I can remember discovering Monty Python, and you know, you first get introduced stuff like the Holy Grail and um, and and whatever you might think of most of Monty Python. Then you get into the Flying Circus stuff and some of their live live things, and it's just classic funny British humor. And one sketch that I remember that I particularly remember that I got sidetracked in some wormhole on YouTube right now because COVID. Um, that was the Ministry of Silly Walks where John Cleese, in just brilliant physical comedy, just is absurd and funny and pointless and walking in the most ridiculous ways possible. Um, in fact, you know, you, you, if you haven't seen it, you can only try to capture it in an image. And as he, as he walks this way, he, it always would begin with a scene of him walking down the street and then coming into his office, and he'd say something like, well, I'm sorry to be late. I'm afraid my walk has become much sillier of late. And a con the concept of a government department devoted to silly walks was just silly, and his comedy was perfect. Um, and it's a sketch that became one of their best known and of that classic Brit British comic, comic troupe. But I learned recently that John Cleese hated it. He thought it was ridiculous. He didn't want to do it whenever they do live tours. He didn't want to be a part of it. And it always got written in, and he hated it. Um, but it, one of the things that I think makes the Ministry of Silly Walks a funny sketch is that most of us don't have the confidence to just walk down the street in ridiculous and absurd ways. And, and can you imagine that? If somebody walked around Capitol Hill with just a ridiculous walk, people would think that you were on something and you might call the police. Or can you imagine if somebody was walking around on the National Mall or in the, in the halls of Congress in ridiculous ways? They, whatever the case, whether it's a silly walk or not, our walk does tell a lot about us. You can tell a lot about what's going inside, on inside of somebody by the way that they walk, whether it's 
I mean, typical DC, that if it's fast and focused and purposeful, that you're headed somewhere, or whether you're, it's, whether you're dawdling and dreaming and looking at the clouds, or whether you're depressed and slouched and hands in pockets and moving slowly, or maybe your walk has a limp, or maybe you have a bounce in your step, you can tell something about us by our walk. And that's true of spirituality as well. It's a metaphor that happens throughout the New Testament, that our spiritual life is characterized by the way that we walk. Not physically, but necessarily, but it's a metaphor that's used for the way that we live our lives. So that's what we see as we continue our study in Romans 8 today, is that God's, God has fulfilled the righteousness, his righteousness in us and given us a new walk. And so this is what we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, these verses, these two verses are one long, complex sentence in the Greek text. The ESV breaks it into two readable sentences for us, which is fine, but but this is one thought that hangs together from the Apostle Paul, and it begins with the word for, which is an explanation. It's saying that it's explaining what has come before it. And so remember that what has come right before this, what we looked at last week, is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so that's when it says, now for the explanation, God has done what the law could not do. And so the question of what is it explaining, it's immediately what precedes it, that we have been set free from the law of sin and death and set free by the spirit of life. And so that is what it is explaining here is how does that happen? How do we get set free? What does it mean that the Spirit sets us free? And and how is it possible that there's now no condemnation left for us, for for all those who are in Christ Jesus? And so as I read these two verses, as we read this, what is, again, one long sentence in the Greek text, one of the things that's striking to me is that it's incredibly Trinitarian, that you see Father and Son and Spirit all in their roles in our redemption and justification in the nature of the gospel. And so if we see the Godhead on display and all are involved in setting us free and giving us a new walk. And so that's the big idea that we have today is that if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have been given a new way to walk. And in that new walk, first of all, we see that God has done it. And so this is right off the top here. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God has done what the law could not do. And so make no mistake about the the subject of the sentence. It's it's not us that are the main actor. It's not saying we have gained our freedom. It's not saying we are smart enough to have figured this out or we are righteous enough and have lived up to it. It's not the purity of our religion that earns this. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who acts. God is the one who has done what the law cannot do. And the law is incapable to set us free. 
Now, this is clearly talking here about the Mosaic law. We talked about this last week, that in verse 2, it talks about the law of sin and death versus the law of the spirit of life. That here, I don't think in verse 2, it's talking about the Mosaic law, the Torah. It's talking about, about overall the, the binding power of the spirit versus the binding power of sin and death. But in 3, it picks up this thread of the law of, that has been given to the Israelites and its incapability to save. And this is something we've seen all the way through. So in chapter 3, we see it in verse 20, where it says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Later on, it goes on to say, What then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He picks it up in chapter 4, later on, where we read, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law were to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. And then even in chapter 7, directly preceding this passage, the whole the whole of chapter 7 is showing the inability of the law to save us. And in verse 6 where it tells us, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so all the way through Romans, this isn't a new concept. This is a thread that the apostle has been building all the way through this letter. And it's being rem it's, it's, this is almost a recap. And I would say that through 8 verse 4, which is our passage today, he's really summarizing everything that's come before as he moves into a new section of this letter. And so this is a transitional passage for us. This idea that the law cannot save us, but God has done something different, is, is, has been drilled into the fabric of the gospel and hammered out over and over again in Romans. And yet, even though we've been in this study together as a church since January, and even though if you're a part of Redemption Hill, or you've, you've, you hear this regularly, that the law cannot save us, our own righteousness cannot save us, the wor our works cannot save us. It's only by God's grace alone, it's, it's through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we have any hope of salvation. No matter how much we hear that, we still just don't buy it. We might say that we believe that, but functionally in our lives, we still, we still live under the, the, a, a crushing weight of moralism, trying to earn our sanctification way too often. And Pastor Ray Ortland said, the new life in Christ is not a superior religion. It's God's alternative to human religion. Religion may arise from various motives. At its best, religion tries to enforce morality. It draws lines and punishes trespassers, but human religion cannot change hearts. And real goodness, strong goodness, springs from the heart. Religion cannot save us on its own. We cannot shape our hearts through greater morality. And, and so this is something that comes up over and over and over again, especially through our study in Romans. But here, it's not saying that the law has no power. It's saying the law was weakened by flesh. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. 
This is the same echoes as what we read earlier in chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And so the law itself isn't weak. The law is powerful. The law has a binding power that can condemn us. The problem is that we can never live up to God's righteous decrees and his holy standards. We can't live up to the standard of holiness that is God himself. But the good, and so that means the good effects of the law we can't ever actually receive because it's, we are weakened by our flesh. And so flesh here is a, a word that gets used here in Romans and throughout this letter, throughout the New Testament as well. This isn't just talking about the flesh of our bodies. So this isn't a, some kind of Gnostic, dualistic, the spirit is good and the flesh is bad, our physical bodies are bad and we need to escape physicality in order to attain spirituality and freedom. That's not what this is saying. The, the Bible is an earthy book and everything that God created is good. We are embodied beings. We know that right now because right now we are experiencing what it's like to live life not embodied not being physically present with people we love, not being physically present in our workplaces and physically present, by and large, I mean, most of the church isn't able to be physically present here and our worship is not the same as when we are physically together and you hear the voices of your brothers and sisters in Christ rising to sing and we, we're, the, the preaching is an interactive moment as we, as we together study the word and, and you, we pray together. We, you put a hand on somebody's shoulder to encourage them and, and give full body hugs to let somebody know that you love them and none of those things are things we can do right now and we feel it. So we don't need to just escape physicality. That's not, but what the flesh here is, is what one commentator said, is a this-worldly orientation that all people share. It's, it's, a, it's what stands against what God has given us. It's what Paul wrestles with throughout Romans 7 that is within every one of us that stands opposed to God's law. So that when Paul is saying, saying I love God's law, I delight in the law of God in, in my inner being, but it's my body that wages an, that's another law waging war against the law of my mind, and I'm captive to the sin that dwells within me. And so that's when it's talking about the flesh. It's the power of sin reigning over over us, demanding its obedience to it, and that as sin is personified through this letter. Martin Luther illustrated this for us, how our flesh weakens us and weakens the law's ability to help us. He says, it is as with a sick man who wants to drink some wine because he foolishly thinks his health will return if he does so. We've all met this guy, the guy that says, I don't need to see a doctor. Wine will solve my stomach problems. Sometimes you need to go to a doctor. So Luther goes on. Now, if the doctor, without any criticism of the wine, should say to him, it is impossible for the wine to cure you. It will only make you sicker. The doctor is not condemning the wine, but only the foolish trust of the sick man in it. For he needs other medicine to get well so that he can then drink his wine. Thus also our corrupt nature needs another kind of medicine than the law by which it can arrive at good health so that it can fulfill the law. See, it's not that in Christ we're not to strive for holiness or 
try to minimize sin and our heart's desire to rebel against God and to do things that are wrong and that have dire consequences. It's not that, it's not, this is not antinomianism of saying, saying there is no requirement if you're in Christ. It's saying that when you're in Christ, you're renewed and restored. You're, you are no longer condemned under the law and you're instead freed to live in holiness and out of an overflow of your heart actually transformed by the spirit of God. And so for us, though, we're prone to run to different, way, different paths on this. And so for you, it, it, everybody's going to be different on this. You may be more prone to run to legalism or licentiousness. You might be more prone to run to rebellion and just adamant, outspoken rebellion against God or religiosity and getting it right and having the right face on at church. You might be prone to run to indulgence and self-indulgence or Phariseeism or even kind of an asceticism of like rejecting things and suffering because you think that only suffering is what shows holiness or you might think that only indulgence is what shows holiness. We, we all can fall off on all kinds of sides on this, but no matter where your struggle is, it's all the same core issue of the weakness of our flesh and every one of those things that I just named in reality is self-justification. It's finding our righteousness in things that we can do and control and accomplish. That's what it means that the law is weakened by the flesh. And so this is what's so incredible about Romans 8.3, that God has done what the law could not do. He, he is the one who has done it. And so when we return to the important this, this distinction here, the gospel is not primarily about us. We like to think it is. But the gospel is about God. It's a, he is the author of the story. He is the main subject of it. He is the one who accomplishes everything. We get the benefits of it. It's, so our justification being declared righteous before God is not itself the gospel. That's a great side effect of God renewing and restoring all things and including us in that and declaring us righteous so that we can be in his presence. The good news is that God has done it. And, and that only he has done it, and he has done what the law cannot do, and because the law is reliant on our ability to live up to it, and we never will. We need this reminder because we have a tendency to take ownership of things that we haven't accomplished. I know this because I like sports. I'm watching The Last Dance right now, like most of you, <laughs> because there's no sports anywhere right now, and it's, it's good TV. And um, as a guy who grew up in Chicago, and this was, they won their championships through my middle school and high school years. And so for me, watching these, it's, it's, it's a walk down memory lane. These, this was what I thought. I thought that this was all that basketball was going to be like forever, and it is not. <laughs> um, and, and so, as I, but as I've watched it, you know, when you talk about, it's reminded me because I still talk about the Chicago Bulls, who I haven't watched in years because, you know, and that, that I still talk about them in the first person plural. Back in 98, when we won the championship for the sixth time in eight years. I did not win an NBA championship personally. I was never good enough to suit up. At my best, I've dunked a basketball. That's not a great accomplishment that's going to get you into the NBA. And I've never played at anywhere near that kind of level. But I got to share in the glory of it because it was accomplished on my behalf as a fan. 
as a weak illustration to show something of the echoes of what I'm saying here. God has accomplished this. He has done what we could never accomplish, what the law could never accomplish. And we get to sit back and enjoy the benefits and get a share in that glory. Well, how did he do it? That goes to the next line. He did what the law could not do, which was weakened by the flesh. And how did he do it? By sending his own son. It was Christ who accomplished it. That God has done what the law cannot do, and it was through Jesus Christ. And there are five actions of justification that we see in this verse. The first is that it was by sending his own son. And so this is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, planning and working from eternity past before the foundations of the earth that this would be the plan for the justification and redemption of those who bear the image and likeness of God. The Father sent the Son, the Son accomplished redemption and justification, and the Spirit then applies that in our hearts and in our lives, breathing life into us as the sons and daughters of the King. The second characteristic we see is that it's in the likeness of of flesh, And so it goes on, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so Jesus was not actually sinful, but this is the meaning, the literal meaning of the incarnation. It's encarne, um, which Chewy could tell you probably more clearly than I can because it actually mirrors some Spanish. I only know it because of carne asada, which is grilled flesh. (laughs) Um, But here, this is the language. The incarnation is literally the infleshment of the second person of the Trinity. And so Christ came not in sin, but fully human, fully God, fully man. He was, we are told in Hebrews, he was tempted every way as we are, yet without sin. And so this is what makes it possible for him to stand as our representative and substitute, as he was fully human and can stand in the place for every one of us. This is what we read in Galatians chapter 4 where it says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are his sons, God has spent the spirit of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. And so here again, the whole trinity working for our good to adopt us, and, but it was in the fullness of time that Christ came to accomplish this. The third characteristic we see in Romans 8 is that it was by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And so here it's saying Jesus is our perfect offering and that, that, when it, that the wages of sin is death. That's what we already saw at the end of chapter 6, that what we earn through sin is our own death. That's the cost of human rebellion and the only way to forgiveness is through sacrifice. Now, this is something that's hard for us to conceptualize because most of us don't actively see and participate in sacrificial systems. Wherefore, the Jewish Christians and even pagans at this time in history, sacrifice of animals was a regular part of worship. And so the idea of sacrifices as part of worship, as substitutes to to make atonement for sin, was something that everybody understood. Where for us, it sounds kind of gross and unnecessary. I think that's also because we don't actually understand the importance and the weight of sin. And that when something's broken, there's always a cost to forgive it. This is, we know that this is true. If you ever get in a car accident, you'll find out that this is true. Because, I mean, it's not like you do it on purpose. That's why they're called a car accident. But that doesn't mean that it's cost-free. Your insurance will let you know that. And you will pay for it for at least three years until it goes off of your record. 
hypothetically speaking from experience. And so, but we know this, that, that there's cost involved for the vehicle that you were driving, for the vehicle or, or things that you've hit, and that cost has to be paid or forgiven. And that's, and so, but there's a cost that has to be paid by somebody, whether by the offending party or by someone else. This is what happens when somebody breaks something in your house. We, um, as a family, we all have, we're trying to encourage our kids toward chores, and one of the costs of having kids do chores is that sometimes dishes get broken unnecessarily, where they just walk into the room and a plate's been broken, like it has a chunk out of it, and I'm like, I don't even know how you did that. Um, I would have expected it to shatter. And there's a cost in that. Now, I could actually say to my kids, hey, you're going to replace that plate and you're going to pay me for it. Um, but as a good father, I forgive the cost and we absorb the cost of not having the plate because I'm not going to replace it at this point. But there's a cost involved when things get broken. The cost that comes from our rebellion against God is death. That's the cost. And so there needs to be a sacrifice in order to make atonement and to pay that cost of death on our behalf. And so what we're told is that when God accomplished what the law cannot, he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of flesh for sin, meaning he is the one that could actually be the sacrifice that pays the cost effectively where nothing else can. And that's where you get to the next point, that he condemned sin in the flesh. And so the fourth characteristic of our justification here is that in Jesus, God condemned sin in the flesh. That's why there's no, now no condemnation remaining for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because all of God's rightful wrath at the wickedness of humanity was poured out and taken on by Christ in the cross. Jesus was fully human and as our representative and substitute took our penalty and, and the, took the fullness of condemnation. So the law and its requirements, the debt we owe we, and the cost we owe, Colossians 2 tells us, it was nailed to the cross. And so there's no debt remaining for you if you're in Christ. He came and, and took the condemnation entirely. This is what we already read in our, earlier in our service out of Isaiah 53. We read in Isaiah 53, more than 700 years before Christ came, the expectation, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so why can Paul say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh and he came for sin and in Christ he condemned sin in the flesh. And that's what leads to the fifth characteristic we see here, that in Jesus, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. All of this leads that way. This is the purpose of it all. That's when it, where it says, in order that, this would be the case. And so what this means is, for us, if we really understand what we've seen so far, that, that we're free to a new walk in Christ, that God has done it for us. He's done what the law cannot do, and it's by the Son who was sent for us. If that's true, then what that means is we need to stop shrinking the cross by adding human constructs to it, by adding our own ideas of what it means to achieve and accomplish holiness 
to what Christ has already done and what he has already accomplished. We need to stop minimizing God's work through Christ by turning Christianity into some kind of cocktail that's mixed up with religiosity. Because what we do is we only lessen and weaken the cross of its power. Now, I'm, I'm convinced that the religion that many people reject, many of my friends have rejected in the name of Christianity has nothing to do with the actual gospel. That, that when I talk to people and they, and they say, well, I don't, I'm not a Christian, I don't believe in Christianity, I always want to know, what is it that you don't believe in? What is it that you've rejected? What do you think Christianity is? Because what's offered under the name Christianity right now in this country and what's understood to be Christianity often has nothing to do with authentic biblical Christianity that you see laid out for us in Scripture. And so there's all kinds of things that people think Christianity might be, that we think that it's an empty religion, where people go to a dying church that's small and, and dwindling, and that it's just people stuck with tradition because they just enjoy the things that they've done their whole life is in the same way that they've been done, and so it's a nice social experiment. Um, some people think that what they've rejected isn't biblical Christianity, but what they've rejected is angry, hurtful people that have done damage to them and called themselves Christians. And often when somebody's rejected Christianity, that's one of the questions I want to know is who's hurt you? What's happened to you? Some people think what they're rejecting is an ethical construct, saying I just don't want to live that way and I know I'd have to give up this thing. Maybe, let's talk about it. For many, though, it's a political construct, just constantly railing against Christianity, thinking that that's some kind of a voting block that indicates a certain kind of politics. But what's sad to me is that as I talk to people who've rejected Christianity, whatever it is that they're actually rejecting, that the turn that I see is almost always inward. It's turning inward on a path to self-discovery, that freedom and an expanding of your mind is supposed to come to through, through deeper introspection. And so it's saying, look within yourself, and that's where you'll find what is true about the universe. But what's sad is you can look within yourself all you like, and you're not going to find anything new there. You're not going to discover new truth there. You might learn some truth about yourself and your emotions and your own psyche and how you've processed trauma in your life, and there can be value to some introspection, but you're not going to find freedom. You'll only end up more bound up in your own headspace, and it, can, it will get suffocating in the end. But the problem is that we think that when we sit, that when we sin, there's always um, you know, a reason for it. Pastor Ray says this, we sin because we believe that it is simply the price we have to pay for a taste of happiness. But sin is deceiving us. It doesn't deliver on its promise. It only leaves the bitter aftertaste of death. And God promises us life. And so the problem is that we get caught thinking we have to do certain things because it's the only way we'll be happy, even when we know that it doesn't lead us to greater freedom. The only hope we have for trans transformation and freedom is God's work in setting us free by the Son, Jesus, who took on our sin for us. And then th the third major point today is that the Spirit sets us free to a new walk. And so this is how our passage closes out. That it's the righteous requirement of the law that might be fulfilled in us, in whose us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Now, the word walk here is a present participle, which means this could be translated, those who are walking, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so this, let's make sure to get this right, though, because there's a, if we flip this, it's the difference between empty religion and authentic Christianity. What Paul is not saying here is, as long as you walk according to the Spirit, then the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you, as if it's a condition for that requirement. No, no, no. Remember, God has done what the law can't do because it's weakened by our flesh. What it is saying is, in Christ, you are given new life, and you are given his righteousness, and so now, if you're in Christ, you are walking in the Spirit. That is the present condition that you have. And so authentic Christianity, real Christianity, is not just a system of do's and don'ts and rules and wrongs and rights. It is a full-hearted life that is evidenced by the Spirit's work in you that gives you a hunger for God's presence and a thirst for righteousness and holiness. And so when we are so consumed by God's love for us and so consumed by his pleasure in us. And really, if you can come to a point where your heart believes that there's no condemnation left for you if you're in Christ, that God has done what we can never see happen through the law, that Christ has done it by taking on flesh, taking our place for sin, giving us his righteousness so that it, it might be fulfilled in us, and now we get to walk in the Spirit, then it makes sin and rebellion against God look so much less attractive. Because you'll experience that it leads you to death. And you'll experience the beauty of life and freedom. But we need the reminder every single day. I flip-flop all the time from thinking and having to tell myself, like, this is not telling us, well, I know I have God's spirit as a Christian, but I just have so much wrong with me and I can't, or there's so many problems, there's so much anxiety or so much pressure. No, this is saying, yes, I have so many problems and so much anxiety and there's so much pressure. Nothing's going how I want it to go right now, but I have the spirit of God. You'll come to learn that self-indulgence will only wear you out more and it'll never actually satisfy you. And this language of walking comes up later on in Romans. In Romans chapter 13, we read it. Where Paul says, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He's saying, wake up, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. The same word that's used in Romans 8, that we are walking in the spirit, not in the flesh, in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, and not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so we're called to walk in the light of the Spirit who has indwelt you if you are in Christ. And listen, if you are beaten down and tired and worn out and you wonder, like, why is it worth it to continue to even open the Bible? Is it worth it to continue to try to pray when it feels dry? Is it worth it to show up and gather with God's people to worship, especially now when it's just a recording, but then when we're allowed to do it in person, is this worth it to, to show up to my community group? And, you know, I'm just so sick of Zoom calls, and I'm completely Zoomed out. Can, or if you're feeling shame and wondering, can you even show your face? 
you need to hear that that's exactly why we're here, is to be reminded that every one of us needs a great Savior. That every one of us it needs to be reminded that God has done this through Christ and that his spirit is moving to bring us life. And the more you turn to God's presence and the more you turn to his, his word and his presence over your own self-indulgence, the more you will feel a satisfaction that will actually last. And that's what it means to be freed to walk in the spirit. And I, I, don't, I don't know what makes us so hesitant to walk in the spirit. I think sometimes it's because it, does, it feels too costly. As we just read in that Ray Orland quote, that, that we think that sin is the price we need to pay for happiness. We think, well, to be really happy, I've got to go and do this thing, and that's what it means, that's when I'll be fulfilled. And so it feels costly to let go and trust that we don't need it. I think sometimes it's that we still live under condemnation. And shame takes root in us, and we have a feeling of, a sense of, saying, well, this just proves everything that I hate about myself. I might as well just give in to it. At least it'll take the pressure off. We don't believe in our hearts and trust that there's no condemnation left for us if we're in Christ. I think sometimes we're hesitant to walk in the Spirit is because we're embarrassed to. Because it's going to make us stand out from the people around us. The same way that the ministry of silly walks makes John Cleese stand out in a crowd. We don't walk in the fullness of the joy that we have in our lives physically because people would think we're crazy. If you experience real freedom in Christ and real freedom to walk in the Spirit, it's going to look absurd to others. You're going to look silly at times. This is, we see this in Scripture that to the wise, the gospel looks foolish. To the strong, the gospel looks weak. But our confidence is never that we are so great or that we're so capable. The confidence we have is that God has done this. That he's the one who has accomplished it. That it's in Christ and by sending his son that sin was condemned in the, the, for us and that we were set free. And that the spirit frees us to walk with a new walk. And so we can have the boldness to say to others when they don't know why we're doing what we're doing. And it's an overflow of joy in the spirit of God. We can say, I'm afraid my walk has become much sillier of late. Because this is what we cling to. This is the good news of the gospel at the beginning of Romans 8. That there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who are walking not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's pray. And Father, this is, is so hope-filled today, and yet continues to be so hard for us to believe because we want to be contributors, we want to have a sense of control, we want, and, and we are, are bent toward enjoying sin and believing that it is the cost we have to pay in order to be happy. I pray today that you'd give us a boldness to actually take hold of the freedom that you've called us to. That you would give us a, a, a boldness to trust you to walk in the spirit and in the newness of life that you would help us to, to actually, actually rest in your promise. 
I pray today that you would help us to see how our only hope comes in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.